0: The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. Matthew chapter 14, and we'll start... In verse 22, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take that with you. We really want you to have the Word of God so that you can read it, so that you can see what the Scriptures say about Jesus and about the good news of the Gospel. To give honor to God's Word, let's stand as we read and hear God's Word read aloud. Immediately... But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus said, take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know the hope which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Lord, these are difficult times in our church. These are uncertain times. And so now more than ever, we need you. We need you to come and speak peace to our hearts. We believe that you will. We believe that you already are. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So, a few months ago, that thing happened again. It is the fall, it's August, it doesn't feel like fall and it happened. If you follow your grandkids on any sort of blog or, or website or anything like that, you might've begun to see a lot of photographs show up, all sort of at the same time, Everybody was dressed in new clothes. Everybody had smiles on their faces and were looking very, very prim and proper. And it could only have meant one thing. It meant that the first day of school was right around the corner. And as I saw all of my uh, friends and uh, and folks that I've known over my life who have kids a little bit older than Nathaniel uh, start to post the photographs of their little ones going to kindergarten or first grade or whatever, I looked in that and I and there was really just one thought that went through my mind as I saw all of that. Man, I'm glad that time of life is done. I'm really glad I'm not going back to school right now. I remember when I was in first grade, uh, we would uh, um, walk down the hall and we'd look in the window of the uh, fifth grade class and I would see all of these textbooks stacked up on their desk and I'd be like, that's what we have to do in fifth grade? I don't wanna to go to fifth grade. One of the things that was interesting, at least for me, about, um, about uh, my time in grade school was, I did a lot better on tests that required me not to uh, remember answers, but reason answers. Some of you can relate to this. Some of you do better if you can just put it in your own words rather than having to grab a fact off the page that was something you memorized of somebody else's words. Um, So tests and school and all of that. Those things never weren't ever happy memories for me. And so when we think about being in school, it can bring a fair amount of anxiety and stress to us. And yet we look at Matthew's account here in the 14th chapter of his gospel. And we see the disciples in Jesus's school of discipleship. And this wasn't a negative thing. This wasn't Jesus as a a mean teacher who was trying to trick them on the test. But it was actually training the disciples to give them the skill sets that they would need in order to do the work that they were going to be called to do. But see... School is is not an easy thing because, again, a lot of us get that anxiety like, am I going to pass the test? Am I going to be able to say the right answer or do the right thing when the time comes? But no, we, we see here Jesus as a loving teacher who puts together the test and that he himself intervenes and makes sure that his people pass the test. You Look this morning at this snapshot of the disciples in Jesus' school of discipleship. We're going to see three things. We're going to see Jesus, that he sees his people, he hears his people, and that he loves his people. So let's look at the first thing. Jesus sees his people. And um, for those of you that like notes and, and like uh, structure, these are the three things I want to consider Um, as we see Jesus seeing his people. And the first is, I want to consider the place of prayer. I want to consider the purpose of storms. I want to consider the provision of Jesus. So once again, the first three things I want to look at is the place of prayer, the purpose of storms, and then the provision of Jesus. The place of prayer. We see that Matthew's account here opens up in verse 22, um, that Jesus sent the disciples onto the boat, uh, and he dismissed the crowds. Now, what were the crowds for? The previous account that Matthew just gave us, starting in verse 13 of chapter 14, was the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Now, just prior to that, John the Baptist had been beheaded. And so there's a lot of stuff going on right now in very close succession. The one who was announcing the way uh, that people of God should prepare themselves for the Lord. That man has just been beheaded. And then we see the crowds following Jesus. And, and the disciples said, should we send them away? And, and, and they said, well, we don't have any food, so we'll feed them. And so Jesus miraculously provided for the 5,000. But it was at this time that Jesus was weary and wanted to go be alone with his father. And so he sent the crowds on and he's put the disciples on the boat. You see, the people of God were still looking for Jesus to provide what they thought they needed. They were waiting for a military ruler to come. And they were following him because at some level, I think, they thought they were going to be his army. And so they didn't bring rations or provisions. They were ready for him to sort of provide for the troops and go. And he did provide. He fed them. From, from, by his grace, he fed them, but not in the way they were expecting. And he sends them away with compassion. And then we see Jesus going before his father in prayer. And we need to sort of stop here and ask a question about the text. And that is, are we reading into the text how we view prayer? Are we reading out of the text how Jesus views prayer? See, I don't know about you, but um, I, I have a few. Di- I had a few different misconceptions about prayer uh, over the course of my life. One was like when someone's in prayer, you better not interrupt them. <laughs> they're, they're doing serious business, and if you interrupt them, you're in trouble. It was I think it was my uh, freshman year, the summer after my freshman year of college, that um, I was on a, a, a summer beach project with campus outreach. And my, uh, the, the, the young man who was leading my discipleship group that summer actually invited me into his prayer time. Like, he just invited me to come and sit with him as he prayed. And he prayed all the things that he would normally pray in his head out loud. So that he could sort of model for me what prayer looked like. I had never seen that before. And see, the other thing that we, when we say, oh, Jesus went away to pray, what do we think he was praying about? Well, if you look at John's gospel in, in chapters 17 through 19, we know that one of the things that Jesus was praying, praying very fervently and earnestly about was his church. His people. The people that would go and carry his witness on in the world. And friends, this is a good thing. When the disciples were out on the boat, when the crowds had been dismissed, was Jesus communing with his heavenly Father? Of course Was Jesus going before him because he loved his time with his father? Absolutely. But friends, we know that Jesus prayed. By the way, he modeled his prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father in heaven, glory to your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And so he's praying in the way he modeled. He's praying to his father for his people. He's not forgotten about them. He's not saying, okay, you go on and do your thing. I've got to do my thing and I'll be back. No, he's praying for his people. And this is a good thing to remember. Even this day, those prayers that Jesus offers to his father are still going on. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have an advocate, an intercessor, a high priest in Jesus Christ. Who is before his father, even now praying on behalf of his people. There's a second thing that we see here in the text. And that is the purpose of storms. I want you to notice, uh, if you'll turn in your scriptures over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And it's here that we actually see the account of another storm. Look at verse 23. And when he got into the boat, that would be Jesus, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went, and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? And then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was great calm. And then marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? even winds and sea obey him so as you look back at our text the disciples had had seen this before right they had followed jesus onto the boat the first time but this time did you see what the text said the text said in verse 22 he's, he's immediately he made the disciples get into the boat now We know that Jesus is the I am. He is the holy one of God, fully God and fully man. Do you think that Jesus was caught off guard that his disciples out on the sea of Galilee all of a sudden found a storm come upon them? No, no. In fact, Jesus is not only one, not only one who rebukes wind and wave, but as Colossians one tells us, Jesus is the one that spoke wind and wave into existence. So why? Why would he do that? Why would he send his disciples into this place of storm? You see, Jesus sent them out there because this was part of their training. This was part of their equipping. They needed to learn this lesson that Jesus protected them even though he was not physically there with them. Can you remember with me another time in the disciples' life where they would have needed the protection and provision of the Lord Jesus Christ? In Acts chapter 1, Jesus was taken up from the ground and up into heaven. And the disciples said, wait, where are you going? What's happening? And Jesus said, no. It is not for you to know the time or day that I'm coming back. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so even now in in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is showing his disciples that even though he's not physically there, he's still protecting them. Even though Jesus is not physically there, the storms will not overtake them. They needed to know that even in the storm, even in the absence of Jesus' physical presence, they were still safe. The only way they could see that is if they saw it modeled and lived out. So what does the text say? Well, before we think about that, let's take a step back. Sometimes storms in our life come because of disobedience. The book of Hebrews reminds us that sometimes the father uses discipline. He uses circumstances. He uses things in order that we would be conformed more and more to the image of jesus christ so sometimes storms come from disobedience but it's not because god is angry with you it's not because god is punishing you it's not because god is trying to exact some sort of revenge on you no god has poured out all of his wrath all of his vengeance all of his anger all of his displeasure on jesus and so when storms and trials come it's not because the father is saying i'm going to get you this time I warned you ten other times, but this time I'm going to get you. No. When storms come, it's so that we would look only and always to Jesus. And sometimes we can be doing everything right as best we know it, and still the storms come. And We have to know that our gracious and good and loving Heavenly Father has given us all the provision that we need in the Lord Jesus Christ to be able to weather these storms. Some of you I know have um, <clears throat> been on corporate team-building retreats. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Corporate team-building retreats? Team yeah, Some of you are smiling because you know where this is going. And and one of the things that that these uh, consultants and team builders do is this exercise called a trust fall. I don't know who thought of this, but frankly, I'm not pleased with them. (laughs) And for those of you who who have not experienced such wonder, it is where basically you you get your team kind of in a circle and you get two people to come into the middle. And and you're supposed to turn and put your back to your teammate and close your eyes and do just a, a free fall backwards. It's to build trust that your teammate is going to grab you. This is a lovely thing to do. It's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of of, of really great breakthroughs. Unfortunately, it doesn't work as well in a high school youth group with adolescent boys. Because the boys actually think it's more fun to watch the unsuspecting chum hit the deck. Ha, 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 ha. Not that that's ever happened to me. (laughs) Right. So, but the point is, none of us are hardwired to trust anybody outside of ourselves. We have a hard enough time trusting people that we can see. In the trust exercise, when you turn your back backwards, you shut your eyes, you cross your arms, and you let yourself fall backwards, you have to believe that there is something there that's going to grab you before you crack your head on the ground. Or maybe maybe some of you are actually more like the bruised high schooler. You've actually been burned too many times. And you don't like to trust. And you don't like to, to give yourself over to the care of someone else. And so situations that come where all of a sudden you're going to have to trust that something outside of you is in control and whatever happens, it's for your best, that frankly freaks you out. And so what you do is rather than risk, rather than trust, rather than look with faith that there's something there behind you to catch you, not just sometimes, but every time, you've been hurt too many times, you've been bruised too many times, you say, no, 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 fool me once, fine, fool me twice, Not going to happen. And so you say, I'm not going to trust. Well, look. Jesus provides for his people. Jesus sees his people. Jesus was on the shore and the disciples were on the sea. And the storms rose up. Do you think this caught Jesus off guard? No. Who was the one that sent the disciples out on the boat in the first place? It was Jesus. Who's the one that knew the storm was going to come? Jesus. Who's the one that we can trust because we know he is good and does what is good, according to Psalm 119? Jesus. So not only do we see that Jesus sees his people, but the second big thing I want you to see out of this text this morning is that Jesus hears his people. Jesus hears His people. Look at verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. Now we need to go back one verse and look at what time of night this was. What time was this? It said it was the fourth watch of the night. And so, by the way, uh, the Jewish people kept the clock. The fourth watch of the night was sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And you know... That at night, it's always darkest when? Before the dawn. It's always darkest before the dawn. So the disciples have been on the boat, and they've been on there for a while. They've at least been on there since twilight of the previous evening, and may have been earlier than that. So they're on the ship. They've been battling wind and wave all night long. Then what do they see? In the the deep, over the fog, through the spray, through the wind, through the waves, what do they see? They see Jesus walking to them. But these are fishermen, friends. They've never seen anybody walk on the water before. Fishermen are hardwired to be superstitious. I've told you before that I, I kind of like the show Deadliest Catch, not because I want to be a crab fisherman, but because I'm really impressed that someone else is. And one of the captains, Captain Keith Colburn, is probably one of the more superstitious guys on that show. He'll knock on every single thing in that wheelhouse when he's hoping for a good omen. Fishermen are by nature superstitious. And so the disciples are out there. They've been beat up by the waves into the fourth watch of the night. And now they see a spirit coming and say, oh great. (laughs) We're done. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) We're out. And they cried out in fear. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. Look, the English loses the force of the translation. If you look at the original language, Jesus didn't just say, it is I. Jesus actually said, take heart. It is. Is I am. It is I am. Where have we heard that name before? Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? What is your name? And God said, tell them, I am sent you. So here, Jesus is invoking the divine name. And he's saying, take heart. It's not just your friend, Jesus. Take heart. It is the Godhead incarnate. It is fully God, fully man, divinity and humanity met together. It is I am. Don't be afraid. But that's not the only cry that Jesus heard. Jesus also heard Peter. And Peter said, okay, all right, I'm I'm willing to play along. If it's you, and you're really who you say you are, then command me to get out of the boat. Now, I appreciate Peter's moxie there, honestly. I don't know if I'd been battling wind and wave all night long that I would have had the fortitude to say, okay, fine. Command me to step off of the ship. And that's exactly what Peter does. Now, let's just... Again, take a step back from the text. Because I know this is a very familiar text to many of you. Did Peter come hardwired with the ability to walk on water? No, that wasn't part of the original operator. Uh, That wasn't part of the original package. That was an upgrade. He said, Jesus. Enable me to do something that outside of myself it would be impossible to do. Only then will will I believe that it's you. And Jesus said, come. One word, come. Peter stepped off the boat and walked to Jesus. Now, we we should also pause and, and sort of contextualize this in our present day. As I said earlier, as a church, we're in a transition. We don't come hardwired with the wisdom to figure out on our own who the next pastor of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church should be. We don't come hardwired with the patience to journey through this process together. We don't come hardwired with the trust to know that God is good and does what is good. And when his people ask for bread, the heavenly father will not turn around and instead give them stones. We don't come hardwired with faith to say, God, we've got nothing else here but you. And you know what? This text is good news for us this morning. Because Jesus had none of those things. I, I'm sorry. Peter had none of those things either. Jesus Gave them in abundance to Peter. In abundance to Peter. But look at what happens. This is... Verse 30, when I was studying this passage, verse 30 jumped out at me like a lightning bolt because I had never seen it before. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. When Peter saw the wind. Now... I would think, again, this is just personal opinion here. I would think that I would look down and see myself walking on water and begin to say, this is not quite normal. (laughs) Peter saw the wind and became afraid. What are some ways that we can um, learn some valuable principles from this text? What are some things that can derail us as a church in this time? What are some things that can cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus, see the wind, become afraid, and sink? I want to propose to you a couple. And again, this is not exhaustive, but it's a few things that, um, that I think would be helpful for us to watch out for. The first thing that could derail us in this time of transition is not trusting God with his church, not trusting God with his church. Friends, in our history, we have um, moved from place to place to place. We have never um, really in these last, uh, at least six years, six and a half years that I've been here, really ever been put in a place where finances were an issue They've been tight, but they've not ever been, you know, an issue. Like, oh man, what do we do? Do we keep the water on or keep the power on? Like, it's never been that. We've retired a mortgage on a building before the financial collapse hit. It's easy to get lured into a sense of self reliance. It's easy to get lured into a sense of self reliance and to think that these were things that we did. Therefore, we have it within our power to do anything we set our minds to. Friends, watch out. We need to make sure that we remember that this is God's church. We need to trust it to him. We need to believe that God has already, in fact, identified the right man for this pulpit and this area for such a time as this. We need to believe that in God's good timing, that man will be here. We need to not look to that man to be Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. That man is Jesus' servant. And when he comes, we will pray that God's blessing would come. And that his gospel would go out of this place. As my friend Mike Roberts reminded me the other night. God is never early. He's always on time. He's never late. Never early. Always on time. Never late. Let's trust that God has His church in His heart. Here's the next thing if we're looking at things like the wind that can cause us to react in fear. We can fall into a temptation of not treating one another as family. Actually, we may treat one another too much like family. Look at Galatians 5. Starting in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So... This time of transition is a time of, there's a lot of mixed feelings going on. There's some sadness. There's some anger. There's some frustration. There's some hurt. Some of us, when we're upset, internalize, right? Some of us just sort of bottle it up, go to our room, figure it out, come out, we're all better. Some of us externalize. Here's the watch out, friends, watch out. Love your neighbor. Don't devour each other with your words. Would our speech remind us of who we are and whose we are? May our speech remind us of who we are and whose we are. Listen. Jesus has given us mechanisms to deal with conflict. He doesn't ever assume that you're going to agree with everyone in the body of Christ all the time. But here's the thing, friends. If you don't like what someone is doing, if you don't agree with what's happening, could we please talk to that person rather than everyone else but that person? If we do not do that, I fear that we will devour one another and the ship will sink before we ever have a chance to get out of this transition process. We must love one another the way Jesus loved us. We must regard one another more highly than we do ourselves. Again, we don't come hardwired with the ability to do this. We must cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me love people that are nothing like me and if I were going out on a desert island and able to choose my 10 friends I wouldn't have chosen that one see we need that type of gospel help to love one another third thing not grieve not dealing honestly with the grieving process look some of us have been dealing with this transition now for many weeks Some of us, it's just now starting to sink in. Okay? We need to watch out for two ditches. On the one hand, watch out that you don't say, well, I'm over it. Why is no one else over it? And then treat your neighbor with contempt because they haven't gotten it together yet. We would never think about doing that when grieving the loss of a loved one. On the flip side it's a danger to get stuck in the grieving process and never move out of it. Grief and lament is not a search for answers. Grief and lament is not a search for restoration. Grief and lament are a search for God himself. And so would our prayer be, as we grieve the loss of a friend and a pastor whom we have sent from this place into a new work, trusting that God has led him, trusting that God has empowered him, when we let the grief process work, but when we look to Jesus. Lastly, there's a great tendency in these times to not be willing to get out of the boat. It's a great temptation to pull up our stakes, pack up our tent and be like an old Western town when the bad guy rolls in tumbleweeds. Everybody closes up shop. All you see is the, the barkeep's hat sort of rattling there on the counter because he went with speeds faster than lightning out the door. This is a unique opportunity, friends, for us to do what Joe has always said was our job. The job of the leaders, according to Ephesians 4.12, was to equip the saints for the work of the gospel equip the saints for the work of the gospel the session cannot do this process by themselves the deacons cannot do this process by themselves heaven knows i cannot be part of this process by myself we all must be together. This must be uh, a, a here-now-we-stand moment for our church. We must take ownership of the fact that this is Jesus' church. And it's not Jesus' church because of the name on the sign or because of the building or anything else. It's Jesus' church because you and I are here. And as 1 Peter reminds us, when we gather together as living stones and Christ as the chief cornerstone, when we gather together, we constitute a new temple of the Holy Spirit. By which Jesus comes and pours out his power. So friends, are we going to get out of the boat? Are we going to look at the wind and waves and say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm waiting to see what happens? Or are we going to be like Peter and say, you know what, Lord, if it's this time, great, call me, I'll come to you, I'm all in. Peter could have stayed on the boat, but he didn't could have stayed on the boat, but he didn't. If we go back to our text, what do we see lastly here in Jesus' love for his people? Look at verse 32. Peter cried out to Jesus. Peter was sinking. Look, Peter's not infallible. He's going to mess up. We're not infallible. We're going to mess up. And he cried out and he said, Lord, save me. There's a few times in this text that we see Matthew say the word immediately, without haste, without delay. Look, Jesus reached out to Peter without delay. And he grabbed him. He wasn't going to let Peter fail the test. He's not going to let us fail the test. He said, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you're the son of God. The boat became a place of safety for the disciples. My wife is a teacher, <clears throat> at least. Uh, she, she still is. She just has a classroom of, of, of one um, cute little one right now. And a big unruly one, but that's a... Another sermon for another day. And she reminds me that object lessons are helpful. I'm, I'm a little bookish, and I get that. And sometimes I get really excited about a lot of words. And some people learn by words, and some people w- learn by word pictures. So if you would, look up. It's a lovely homage to historic church, ar- church architecture. Historic church architecture saw a great need for a high vaulted ceiling. A lot of times coming to a peak like that. Why? They remembered back to Genesis. They remembered back to when God provided an ark. It is like the hull of a ship turned upside down. Architecture was meant to communicate theological reminders to the people of God. Listen, friends. The disciples got back on the boat and the wind and waves ceased. And they worshiped Jesus and said, truly, you are the son of God. This place might feel like a place of uncertainty and a place of of, of great angst. Listen, the church is the ark. The church is the place where we can expect God's presence, God's provision. The church is the place where we can say that we are safe as the storm buffets around us. As we sang this morning, though Satan should buffet and trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. Listen, the church is the bride of Christ. You remember in Ephesians chapter 5 when the Apostle Paul was trying to lay out for the people of God this grand vision of the bride of Christ. And so he goes on this beautiful narrative about the, the Jesus' relationship with His church is like a husband's relationship with his wife. And we learn a lot of beautiful things about marriage there in Ephesians 5. But what does Paul say at the end? He says, this is a profound mystery. But what I'm speaking about is Christ and his church. Jesus died for his church. At the the, uh, end of the hymn, uh, the church is one foundation. We see in verse 3, I believe it is. With his own blood, he bought her and for her life, he died. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed. And the great church victorious will be the church at rest. Friends, Jesus has not forgotten about us. And Jesus has still given his Holy Spirit to be with us. Just as he did to the apostles in Acts chapter 1. We've talked this morning about a lot of things in Jesus' school of discipleship. We've said that tests shouldn't scare us. We've talked about provisions that Jesus makes for us, ways that Jesus hears us and assurances that Jesus loves us. For many students, school is a time to figure out who they are, what they're good at and what they wanna do when they grow up. If you fast forward from the elementary school model to the college model, around the time a student reaches their sophomore year, it's time to start asking that age-old question. What are you going to major in? And they'll look at you, and they'll think about it, and they may say something to the effect of um, mass communication, historical studies. Good. What do you want to do with that? Go to more school. (laughs) When we ask ourselves, what are we going to do with the training that Jesus is giving us? I want to use the text as we close of a hymn by John Newton. Now, you know John Newton uh, penned many great hymns, one of which was Amazing Grace. John uh, uh, read a lot of his life into the hymns that he wrote. This particular hymn, I just want to I just want to read it to you. It's called, I Asked the Lord. And there's going to be a few uh, funny lines in it, but one of the lines that you'll hear is this line that the Lord crossed all the fair designs I schemed. The Lord frustrated every plan that we put together. And you'll hear it in the context of the hymn. So Newton writes, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered this prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once... He would answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Did you hear what he was asking for? He said, give me instant sanctification and instant peace. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yet more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings and laid me low. And then he says, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Listen to how he envisioned the Lord's reply. It's in this way I answer prayer for grace and faith these inward trials that I employ from self and pride to set you free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. Break the schemes of earthly joy so that all we have left is nothing but water that should sink us, waves that should topple us, And a Savior that says, Come. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have not forgotten us. You have not abandoned us. You have not abdicated your throne to someone else. These storms, O Father, indeed have come by your gracious hand. And so give us faith, grant us wisdom, grant us courage. Help us to look only to you, that we would see all of our um, earthly desires dashed. Not so that we would be crushed, but so that we would be conformed to the image of the one whom you love, that one who has called, him, called us his, that one in whose name we pray, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.